I, I find the the bomb itself as both event and symbol and thing uh, such a coalescence of so many different disciplines, so many different ideas. You know, it coalesces philosophy and science and eco-criticism and environment and politics and myth and religion. Welcome to our second episode of a special series we are calling Examples. Often in the study of religion, we find ourselves interested in and exploring topics that, on the surface level, seem to have no connection to religion. And many people ask us, you're a scholar of religion. Why are you studying this? We hope that, through examples, the audience will learn some new things along the way and discover that those who are in the academic study of religion contribute to and gain knowledge from other fields of study as well. I'm your host, Sierra Eichhorst, and I am a second-year master's student in the Religion and Culture Program at the University of Alabama. In this episode of Examples, I have interviewed Dr. Eric Klein, an assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin, River Falls. Dr. Klein was in the second cohort of American Examples in 2020 and is a co-editor for Volume 3 of the American Examples Anthologies. American Examples is a Henry Luce Foundation-funded grant that allows early scholars of religion to investigate larger theoretical questions. The foundation of American Examples is the Examples approach, which allows scholars to use examples from America to present analyses about how religion shapes politics, gender, race, etc., without an audience needing extensive background knowledge in American history. Yes, um, hello audience. Uh, my name is Eric Klein. Um, I am an assistant professor of English at the University of Wisconsin, River Falls. Uh, I've just been up here for a year now, starting my second year. I received my PhD in English from the University of Alabama, Roll Tide, and I primarily focus on 20th century American literature, uh, so modernism and postmodernism primarily. Um, Though I am working on a project right now that looks a little bit further into the past in American literature connecting with the present, I do like to kind of look at those cross-temporal connections in American literature, which um, even though Blake isn't American, but, you know, I think that we can see that in my chapter, kind of looking at the ways that past literature influences the present. Um, my monograph, my monograph, which is in revision right now, uh, looks at the intersection of religion, uh, specifically kind of religious creation or invention in, in the post-war period, along with how that intersects with intoxication and travel. Um, I've also published on uh, various uh, aspects of disability studies in, in, in literature, um, some stuff with looking at the kind of rhetoric of, of spectacle and freak shows in, in Southern literature, um, addiction and alcoholism in Fitzgerald and the modernists. So I'm, I'm kind of interested in a lot of different uh, ways that body and mind kind of uh, appear in 20th century American literature. So we're going to be talking about the atomic bomb. Um, mm -hmm. I, so I read your 
manuscript chapter for the second volume of American Examples. And so I found your chapter super interesting because I had never thought about the atomic bomb before. Like, even really just in general. I was like, oh yeah, the atomic really? bomb is like a bomb. Like, it exists. It's a thing. When I think about the atomic bomb, I think about that Indiana Jones movie where he's in the refrigerator. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah, the, the <laughs> Indiana Jones 4. Yeah, the, the, the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. The Aliens one. <laughs> and I was reading it, and I was like, why am I reading about the atomic bomb and religion right now? I thought it was super interesting. So that's why I wanted you on the podcast. Um, and so can you tell me what piqued your interest in the atomic bomb? What got you like into the writing on the American literature and the atomic bomb? Yeah. Um, oh, there's, um, uh, there's a lot to unpack here. I think my initial sort of interest in it started with um, focusing as I do on sort of mid-century literature, whether American or European, there's obviously existentialism is really in vogue. And so I think when I was, you know, a younger reader and scholar, that was sort of the initial point of contact. What's something that can fuel sort of existential despair more than this bomb of, you know, capable of human eradication. I, I, I find the the bomb itself as both event and symbol and thing, uh, such a coalescence of so many different disciplines, so many different ideas. You know, it coalesces philosophy and science and eco-criticism and environment and politics and myth and religion and you know, even race and gender, which people might not immediately associate with a bomb. But when we think of the language of, you know, bombshell or a bikini, you know, that's a re reference to the Bikini Atoll where they were doing nuclear tests, uh, like sort of sexualized language is anchored in the bomb. Um, as people have pointed out, there's also the sort of racial implications of the bomb, both domestically with the Trinity site in the Southwest. Um uh, Leslie, Leslie Marmon Silko writes about this in her excellent novel, Ceremony. She's a Native American writer, and, and it's Native Americans in the, in the Southwest, and it kind of ends with them at the Trinity test site and the sort of environmental destruction on it. And then the dropping of it on Hiroshima and Nagasaki is very much motivated by racial understandings of the Japanese. Uh, this is really highlighted in, it's a little bit of an older book now, but it's still fantastic. It was won the National Book Award, War Without Mercy, uh, Race and Power in the Pacific War by John W. Dower. Um, but basically this sort of rhetoric during World War II that the, the, the Japanese were subhuman in some way, he makes this argument that that really uh, acted somewhat as permission for this sort of eradication um, of these uh, of these cities with with these kind of never before seen weapons, um, the very nature of the bomb I think kind of invites myth, and that's not my original observation. Even in the immediate kind of dropping of it, we see in newspaper articles uh, comparing it to primarily what you'll see is comparisons to Prometheus. And in fact, Kai Bird's definitive biography of uh, Oppenheimer, the, the, the so-called, you know, father of the atomic bomb, is called American Prometheus. There's this way of, uh, you know, what happens when humanity controls 
the destructive capability of a god, something that had only been reserved before to, you know, gods and goddesses or book of revelation or prophecies or things like that. But now it's actually in our control. Um, I just find it to be such an intriguing and also, yes, horrifying and tragic kind of crux that there's so many different angles. Um, it's also imagistic. And, and I think you see that in my chapter. I'm also very much interested in the intersection of language and images in my research. I'm, I guess I were <laughs> I was going to ask you this, but you already answered. And it wasn't the answer I was expecting. If I were to say atomic bomb, what would instinctively come to your mind? I wasn't anticipating Indiana Jones, though I can make some uh, some leaps that it, that still is a visual, right? The refrigerator being launched into the air. But I think, you know, for most people, myself included, you know, just sort of unconsciously almost, if somebody mentions an atomic bomb, I just think of the mushroom cloud. Um, it's just, it's, 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 it's an imagistic kind of icon of a period that uh, created so, like, just so much cultural change. It's an icon of what uh, uh, Thomas Kuhn calls... A paradigm shift in in his in his book, published in the '60s. You know, talking about, um, I, I think it's motivated somewhat by uh, the physics of the time, but the the structure of scientific revolutions. I just don't think that there had been really anything like it before, and I don't know that there has been since. I'm excluding Operation Ivy and the H bomb, but yeah, I think that it 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 is such a wily symbol and so hard to pin down that it's really just intriguing um and so speaking of, you talked about the bomb being a racialized image mm -hmm. so can you explain the concept that you talk about in your chapter coined by alan watts called turn east yes um i will say i don't know if watts coined the term okay um to be honest, I don't know who did. It's I, I, I. It's it's something I've just kind of come across quite a bit. But Watts is certainly sort of an early adapter of it, and somebody who um, embodies it in a certain amount of way in his sort of blend of psychology and philosophy and religion that was kind of popular mm -hmm. at the time. That obviously Ram Dass fits into as well, right? Basically, it's the idea or the concept of Western cultures and countercultures looking to traditionally Eastern texts or religions or philosophies. So looking to the Bhagavad Gita, looking to the Diamond Sutra, looking to Taoism, looking at traditionally sort of Eastern uh, texts and philosophies, to, particularly in the post-war period, to make sense of or to cope with their kind of ex existentially dubious present. So with with attorneys, it's from what I've seen, uh, it's often used as a term of critique. Um, it's and, and I also talk about that in the um, in the chapter two, right? I, I see it often sort of paired with this declension model. Uh, but it's often kind of a term of critique that these cultural and countercultural productions were either half-baked at, at like it would be like the most kind of generous interpretation like oh they don't really know what they're talking about but you know look at those cute hippies or appropriative at worst right that like they're actually taking some and and and, and that's and there's absolutely truth in there i i think i don't think it's as clean cut as one or the other um but that's kind of where that turn east comes from and some of the complications with it 
in essence, it becomes a question of that inflection point of ideas of authenticity or sincerity um, as opposed to performance or something like that or affect. So. And can you expand on what the declension model is? The declension model is uh, this idea specifically of the um, kind of 50s, 60s, early 70s of, you know, it starts with this sort of utopian ideas of harmonious, loving man and, 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 and back to nature, communal living, a sort of idealistic take of that. Specifically, I think, in, in terms of post-world through the, the, the turn east, but also just in general, the sort of utopian kind of thinking in that post-war period, specifically among the counterculture. So the beats and then, you know, into the hippies and stuff like that. And um, all of the sort of cultural movements that come with it. But then what critics will point to is, you know, come to the end of the 60s, we have the Manson murders, but it's this, the declension model is this sort of idea of what started with these sort of utopian dreams descends into just kind of chaotic Dionysian getting high and being violent. Similarly, I think that's much too simplistic of approach, just like I think like the turn East, it, it's not one or the other. There are absolutely aspects. I mean, we look at the, the, the Manson family, we look at uh, different religious kind of creations that are popping up all over the time that do become pretty problematic. But I think it's also unfair to say that that uh, in turn invalidates uh, what some of those earlier uh, idealisms were. If we're talking about psychedelic mysticism, which I want to ask you to expand on, that took place during the counterculture movement, but that was years after the atomic bomb was dropped. So how, where's the relationship created between those two things? So the relationship I think there is the test, the atomic bomb testing is still going on. So even though the atomic bomb has not been used in warfare since 1945, so it's been, you know, a decade and a half, uh, at least since the actual uh, use of these as weapons in war has, there's time has gone past. Uh, really that I don't think that that 15 years is, is too terribly long, but it's important to also consider the Cuban missile crisis is in, you know, the early sixties. Uh, there's still testing going on. There's a huge sort of disarmament movement going at the time. So even though the, actual use of the atomic bomb comes, you know, like I said, about 15 years before the sort of rise of the psychedelic mysticism, the anxieties imposed by the atomic bomb are still ever present in the early 60s, in this early Cold War period. Um, indeed, at this point, the, the nuclear arsenals between both the Soviet Union and the U.S. are still just kind of in increasing exponentially, right? So, it's it's more about the ever-present fear, ever-present threat of it. At any moment, I mean, and this was where like Dr. Strangelove comes in, right? Like it could be just bad communication and we're all dead. So there's this sort of real existential threat of it that it's hard to put it as something that only existed 15 years ago or more. Okay. And can you talk about psychedelic mysticism? Yeah. So... Um, it's a phrase I borrow from the uh, scholar Morgan Shipley. I mean, it's pretty much what it sounds like, right? It, it's 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 a it's sort of a religious experience induced by consuming a psychedelic plant or chemical. 
of course, it's <laughs> I always have to amend that that it's it's much more interesting, I think, than I, I'll get I'll get sort of raised eyebrows as if I'm just looking at people. It's like, oh, like I am just going to eat some LSD and see God type of thing. Like it, it, it's more complicated than that. Uh, I, though, you know, again, sort of with the turn east and the declension model, I think that that's what critics of Shipley and his ilk would kind of suggest that it's just kind of a grab bag term. It doesn't have any specific contours. Um, I don't think that, I don't see that as a limitation. I see that as, you know, something to continue to explore different permutations of it in the period. Some might consider that this idea of psychedelic mysticism is enjoying something like a Renaissance right now. Um, Though I would probably argue that this Renaissance is treating psychedelics more clinically than spiritually. Um, of course, you know I'm thinking of Michael Pollan's what, what's his uh, How to Change Your Mind, a book that came out a few years ago, and they just recently made a documentary on Netflix about it. Um, he says like, and there's, and he has another one, but there's a number. I'm thinking of you know Silicon Valley bosses like, hey, we're gonna go uh, like company retreat we're gonna go to the joshua tree and like macro dose and and you know come together as a company so there's there's definitely sort of a renaissance in in moving away from the horrific oh if you you know trip on psychedelics you're gonna jump out the window that was popular in the 70s and 80s and very much motivated by that go ask alice book though it has often been treated skeptically i think culturally right now um, both in science and in the humanities, there's there's some rethinking of that. There's a reevaluation of um, you know the medicinal, the clinical, the spiritual value of these plants and chemicals. Um, and I think part of that has a lot to do with scholars really starting to understand just how much, the sort of war on drugs was politically and racially motivated that when LSD and psilocybin are made, you know, schedule and as well as marijuana are made schedule one narcotics that had nothing at all to do with the actual danger uh, that these drugs may or may not have. It had everything to do with disrupting these countercultural communities. And, and Nixon's very, very, uh, we have recordings of him saying those exact things, right? So. You talk a lot about Ram Dass and William Blake. So can you tell us who those people are? Yes. Um, Ram Dass, uh, he's born Richard Alpert, uh, born pretty well-to-do um, New England kind of uh, upper middle class Jewish family. Um he was kind of a countercultural spiritual leader from the late 60s until his death. And actually, he just died a few years ago, December of 2019. Um, before his metamorphosis to Ram Das, again, this can become an inflection point that some people might accuse him of that appropriation. Others might say, well, that was actually the name that was given to him by his Hindu guru in India. But, you know, his sort of metamorphosis to Ram Das before his metamorphosis, when he was still Richard Alpert, he was a psychology professor at Harvard in the late 50s and early 60s. He was a colleague of Timothy Leary. Readers might know Tim Timothy Leary uh, for his kind of slogan, the 
that turn on, tune in, and drop out. Uh, but him and Doss were largely together kind of responsible for these Harvard uh, psychedelic experiment, experiments, and they famously kind of get kicked out of Harvard. Um, and then he, Alpert eventually goes on this pilgrimage to India to study Hinduism, and uh, there he, he kind of begets this new identity of, of Ram Das. He's probably best known for his book, which is published in 1971, Be Here Now, which is the, the title that I you know talk about in my chapter. Uh, the main part of the text is entirely hand-drawn. There's, there's sort of a, a narrative at the beginning and different sort of rituals and practices and recipes at the end. Um, but the main text of the book is entirely hand-drawn, both the, the words and the images in it. Um, and the, bowl, the book as a whole sort of captures a, a kind of perennial philosophy or a very comparative sort of religion in that it borrows and sort of, you know, at one point in my studies, I kind of talk about it as a blender. He, he takes Christianity and Judaism and Buddhism and Hinduism and doubt, and he just kind of takes all these things and throws them in a blender and then in, infuses it with kind of pop culture and, and, and hip language and stuff. And then it turns into this book. Uh, and it's become definitely a staple of psychedelic culture since then. I mean, I, I think that there's very few books that if one were to try to create a canon of psychedelic literature, this would certainly be, you know, at the top, along with maybe electric Kool-Aid acid test or, or something like that. Um, so that's Ram Dass. William Blake, on the other hand, is somebody quite different, though, obviously. Well, William Blake was very similar, but in a quite different time. William Blake is an English engraver and poet, alive in the late 17th, late 18th, early 19th century, so during uh, the sort of heyday of British romanticism. And he's a bit of a proto-adopter of the sort of romantic thought, um, and even, you know, early, early romantics like Wordsworth and Coleridge, they look at look to Blake as inspiration. Um, his composition process, so one of the things that makes Blake unique is that as an engraver and poet, he would create these metal plates and then he would press them and then he would he would watercolor and paint all of his books. So of his different books, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, The Visions of the Daughter of Albion, uh, one of the things that makes them so remarkable is very few of these books actually exist. Uh, in physical form, or very few copies of them exist in physical form, because he handmade all of them. So they would be kind of handed out to friends. He would, and and so if you go to the Blake archives, you can see, you know, the different ways that he would paint his plates. But if you look at Blake's just the sort of visual aspect of his books, there's definitely a sort of psychedelic quality to him in terms of it being very swirly and very colorful and very bright, uh, even in his. Uh, narrative of his first trip on psilocybin, the, the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, Richard Alpert slash Ram Dass compares his visions to a Blake poem. And interestingly enough, which I find fascinating, is in one of his poems, Ram Dass, Ram, er, William Blake, and William Blake also wrote, wrote a lot of sort of prophecy and created his own mythology um, and own ages and stuff like that. Uh, but in one of them, he says that he gets his visions by eating dung the way that indigenous Americans do, right? Um, which I argue is a nod to the mushrooms that would be used for sacrament. Um, so there's, there is a weird interplay between Blake and Doss that 
they they do have these nods to each other. And it's also worth noting that just in general, Blake is becomes incredibly popular during the 1960s. A lot of people are looking at his works, both from the psychedelic aspect, but then also in the perennial religion aspect. You know, one of his famous poems is All Religions Are One. Um, so he similarly does this kind of thing of trying to uh, rework myth for a shifting period. Ram Dass is writing in the Cold War, where things are changing rapidly. William Blake is writing at the end of the Enlightenment during the Revolutionary Age. So, you know, the French Revolution, the American Revolution, like all of these, he's also living in a very tumultuous time when things are changing very quickly. And I would argue he's in, engaged in a similar project of, we need to create a new kind of myth to make sense of this rapidly changing present. You're a professor of American literature, as we've discussed, and you received your PhD in English. So what do, has that discipline taught you when it comes to religious studies? So when you went to American Examples, when you went to your first workshop and you were like, whoa, this is so <laughs> different than what I'm used to, mm -hmm. what was there from studying English that you found helpful to talk about religion with other scholars of religion? Yeah. Okay, good. So one of the things I will say that I felt very unequipped for is the sort of social sciences aspect of it uh, and the ethnography aspect. I mean, I have literally no experience or training in any of that except for, you know, going to some festivals, if I can count that as autoethnography. <laughs> um, but right. Uh, what, what helps me as a literary scholar explore uh, the study of religion is its attention to language. Um, it's attention to non-literal representation. I think that the sort of um, social sciences aspect of it focuses a lot on the literal. And I'm not very much interested in, in, in literals or literal meanings or, or things um, or, or rigid categorizations. Mm -hmm. uh, I do think it offers a different avenue of understanding religious experience or community than, say, an ethnographic study. Um, and, you know, at all, this is not at all to knock the, the very important work uh, and, and very uh, intriguing research and work done in on that side of religious studies. But um, just that the, the that literary study is indeed different. Um, that's something I very much learned in the conversations that I had at American Examples. Just the sort of way we approach a text is very different um, and, and cultural representation um says as much as lived experience does. Yeah. And so how did you hear about American examples? What made you interested in being part of that? Yeah. So, okay. So um, before I ever heard about American examples, I started sort of getting interested in this sort of religious studies stuff, um, looking specifically at religion in American literature. So I think there was probably some kind of unconscious connection across what I read and what I was interested in and, and, and how, you know, religion kept on sort of popping up. Um, I think what clarified the connection for me, though, is a graduate seminar course I took uh, at the University of Alabama called Conversion Literature, and it was taught by Dr. Nikhil Bilbakesh, who ended up being my uh, dissertation chair and mentor. I think that class really helped me to make some of these connections more consciously and provided me some of the language to discuss them. Um, we read all kinds of stuff, which which also in in terms of in terms of a sort of method methodological way helped me 
with some of the stuff of connecting Doss to William Blake, because we would be reading things like Acts and St. Teresa and Simone Weil and Malcolm X and sort of reading all these things and making these cross-cultural and cross-historical um, connections. Um, so not only, I mean, it helped me articulate my ideas of literature and religion, but it also did help me with those cross-historical um, connections. So that definitely shows in my American Examples chapter, I think, how did I find out about American Examples, I believe. Um, uh, so Dr. Marinda Simmons in the Religious Studies Department, who is fantastic um, and involved in the American Examples uh, workshop, she was uh, she was on my dissertation committee as well, and she um, just introduced it to me. Was there a point at which, while you were in your studies on like reading and learning and studying about the atomic bomb and the counterculture movement and psychedelic mysticism, that you realized you could connect it to religious studies? I mean, I wish I could say that I had some sort of epiphanic moment, right? Uh, that it's like, oh, this all is coming together and makes sense, but. And, and those research moments do happen, and they are some of the best feelings in the world. But I don't think this happened that way. I, I do think this was slower and more organic. Um, I think a lot of it came from I, I had focused a lot on beat writing in general. Um, the beats being sort of uh, pro, do you know what I mean when I talk about the beats? Yeah. Um, the beat movement is in the 40s and 50s. They're they're sort of progenitors of the hippies. Uh, so Allen Ginsberg, William S. Burroughs, Jack Kerouac. Naked Lunch, the poem Howl uh, by Ginsberg, uh, the 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 novel On the Road by Kerouac. These are sort of the the um, monuments or, or best known works, probably. So so I was doing a lot of reading of beat writing generally, and especially Ginsberg. And in his poem Howl, uh, one of one of the sections, it's it's this sort of chant and prayer to Moloch, who is a Canaanite god of fire um, and and you fed your children to him and, and blah 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 uh and and of course ginsburg in howell is writing it specifically to the military industrial complex and the atomic bomb um of post-world war ii america and kind of cold war culture and i i think it was a lot of the writers i was interested in were making these connections and i was able to sort of uh, piggyback on on their writing and and sort of dive in a little bit more. So, can you give me a brief overview of the research that you did for your chapter in American Examples? Okay, yeah. So, um, the the research I did is what a lot of literary researchers do. Researchers do is I just you know read a lot. Um, I did some historical work and doing a little bit of archival work, but but not a not a whole lot. Um, uh, but the the overall argument is that. The atomic bomb, and it's important to note, uh, I don't necessarily want listeners to think that I am making some kind of strict causal argument, that it's like, oh, the atomic bomb caused psychedelic mysticism or caused this counterculture or anything like that. I, I, I don't agree with that. I, I think that you know, making historical causal claims is, is pretty slippery in any case. But I, I would argue that there's a, an undeniable connection between, you know, what happens with the bomb and these countercultures. Uh, and, and when, you know, Lawrence Langler, who is a, a, a Holocaust, Holocaust uh, scholar, 
in his book, Age of Atrocity, Death in Modern Literature, he kind of points to both the Holocaust and the atomic bomb. And, and I think it is important to keep in mind the Holocaust in there, uh, I, though I don't talk about it in this chapter as much. But, you know, that the Holocaust sort of in 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 Langler's in Langer's argument, and, and I would agree with him, the Holocaust demonstrates a desire for f- fellow human eradication um, and a mechanistic control of doing so. Uh, but the atomic bomb represents a kind of as efficient as the death camps were, and, and, and we know that was one of the things that made them so so much so horrific, is they're quite efficient. They're not nearly as efficient as dropping a bomb that can, you know, kill 100,000 or, you know, once we get into more powerful bombs, millions of people in, in, in the flash of a second, right? Um, so in my argument, there is something that the atomic bomb influences this sense of existential dread, of anxiety, of indeed a kind of mass crisis of faith, I would argue. Um, and some of this mass crisis of faith, we see a lot of, you know, famously, this is also when America becomes, when we invoke sort of religion or God on our currency or in the play, like all of this stuff comes in this period, right? Because uh, of the godless communists. So it's not like all of this sort of crisis of faith is specifically in the counterculture, though I think that's p- precisely what makes them sort of countercultural. While a lot of the sort of square culture is, is going to church, even if they're not true believers, the, the, the sort of countercultural thinkers and, and and authors and young people are like these these sort of traditional religious ideas that we grew up with no longer make sense the idea of an omnipotent benevolent god can no longer hold because you know symbolically we have sort of achieved that divine level of power president truman when he announces the bomb you know, says we have harnessed the basic energy of the cosmos. We've harnessed the power of the sun. Oppenheimer, of course, references the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, there's something. There's something in the language of the bomb, even among people involved with it, right? Of of it being somehow deeply religious. Um, so so that's what starts off, and then I move to talking about the ways that uh, these sort of countercultural misfits maybe. Uh, respond to that. And, and you know, a lot of cultural critics of the atomic age have, have made these. Uh, Paul Boyer is probably one of the best known scholars of this. Um, he's published several books of it uh, around the sort of cultural uh, aspects that the bomb affects. But and, and so people have pointed to the turn east and these kinds of things. But one of the things I thought was sort of missing was also this turn to the Romantic period, the British Romantic period. That you know, these countercultural writers, the Beats and then the Hippies, they're all they're all very well read people, um, and very specifically inserting themselves into a literary tradition, like consciously doing so. Like they write about this. Uh, we are a part of a, a literary tradition, um, and so that's where I, I make this connection that. Not only is it helpful to look at the uh, comparative religion in Be Here Now and how that might represent sort of the countercultural religious turn in response to the bomb, but also we should understand that they're looking to um, history and, 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 and British romanticism and other aesthetic movements as well. In your chapter... Uh, refer when you were referring to the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima, 
you wrote, quote, the event marked a paradigm shift in religious and aesthetic representation as much as it did in ideas of scientific and technological process, end quote. Can you expand on that statement? Yeah, so basically, um, the atomic, like, uh, uh, atomic energy, I mean, not just weapons, uh, you know, this is not just the time of Dr. Strange, this is the time of the Jetsons, right? Um, so uh, atomic technology generally is undeniably, I think we can, without having to need a, a history of science, I think we can all understand that that is certainly a um, paradigm shift in terms of our understandings of science and technology and what we can do with science and technology. What I mean when I say it also marked a shift in religious and aesthetic representation is that because of those uh, that shift in, in how we understand science and technology, authors necessarily find that they have to change how they represent experience because the old systems of representation, specifically in my case in language, though we can look at visual art as well, um, but that the old systems of representation no longer make sense. Just in the same way as I was saying before, the old sort of ideas of, you know, what they may have inherited re re religiously, specifically in thinking of like a Christian Protestant American tradition, like that no longer makes sense. Similarly, literary form of the, of, of the past no longer makes sense. And so they need to sort of um, resuscitate it or reinvent it, which is what Alan is, is what Alan Watts calls it. And so that's where I think we see the influence of the romantics is they were similarly interested in breaking away from, and of course the irony here is that in sort of reinventing are resuscitating these these writers are looking back to history i mean nothing is ever truly new or original right um so we we see that a lot in, in literary studies uh the period in the post-war period we call it postmodernism, and mm -hmm. you know kind of the, the reaction to modernism and um Quantum physics has changed how we understand the universe. Therefore, we need to change how we represent the universe or represent experience. So because the sublime is another kind of connective tissue, I think, between the atomic age and the romantic period. So the sublime in, is kind of a late enlightenment and then early romantic idea. Romantics kind of rejected enlightenment um, in a similar way that the the counter the, the 20th century counterculture kind of rejected science in, in their own sort of way, right? Um, but Edmund Burke writes about it in his A Philosophical Inquiry into the Origin of Our Ideas of the Sublime and Beautiful, published in 1757. Um, he says, and he kind of characterizes sublime as something you find in nature. It's often attributed to like, mountains or the Grand Canyon or giant storms or hurricanes, but something found in nature that is so gigantic and huge, it is utterly awe-inspiring and is also utterly terrifying, right? It is something that invites both wonder and fear at the same time. Um, and importantly for the Romantics, and that's why one of the characteristics of Romantics is, is it's very indebted to sort of nature writing, uh, Percy B. Shelley's famous romantic poem, Mont Blanc, like he's writing about the sublime of looking at this mountain and how powerful it is and all it represents. The reason that it connects to the atomic age, and this is an idea borrowed from outside the gates of Eden um, by Peter Bacon Hales. He, he coins this term called the atomic sublime. For the romantics, the sublime is only found in nature, right? It, it, it shows humanity's sort of tininess 
the atomic sublime is when we first are able to like that sublime is now human made that the mushroom cloud becomes this new icon of it that our own tiny humanness uh is now in like that that used to be something only found in the natural world something beyond the capabilities of humans to create now humans have and so i think that idea of the sublime how it twins wonder and fear at the same time um is also something that can help us understand why these writers felt a need to change or, again, in Watts's words, reinvent or resuscitate mm -hmm. uh, different modes of representation. So moving forward, it's been a few years since you wrote this chapter for American Examples, I believe. What, it's been like one or two years? Two, two I think, because we were 20... We were 2020. Yeah. Wow. So, so it's been a couple of years since you've written the chapter. Um, I'm wondering if your research has expanded or if it's changed since then. Um, if so, in what ways? Are you working on anything new? Yes. <laughs> well, yes and no. Um, obviously, yes, my research has expanded. I, I think I would, uh, if, if it hadn't, I wouldn't admit it on a podcast. Um, but uh, it's definitely expanded and evolved and developed in different ways, I've, you know, in looking at different authors and different avenues. As I had mentioned um, at the beginning of the podcast, I, I'm starting uh, work now on looking at um, some of the less celebratory celebratory. Um, Treatments of the future uh, of the period, like uh, "Go Ask Alice" by Anonymous, um, really by Beatrice Sparks. Uh, but um, so I'm I'm kind of developing this. I'm I'm developing ideas of looking at making connections between the romantic and the postmodern. Specifically, right now, I'm I'm looking at doing a similar thing between the the. Uh, commune movement and the transcendentalists of the 19th century in America and how those get sort of evoked again in 1960s literature, thinking of like Nathaniel Hawthorne and um, uh, Bronson Alcott, Louisa May Alcott's father, um, folks like that. Uh, and I'm currently working on a project, uh, or I'm, 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 I'm also looking at the implications of this analysis, uh, this, the kind of stuff I do looking at religion and science on on how it affects science fiction writers of the period. Um, looking specifically at William S. Burroughs, uh, Kurt Vonnegut, uh, and Samuel Delaney, um, and, and looking at how they, a lot of what I have focused on so far comes at it from the so-called maybe spiritual angle of writers and so i'm interested in also looking at it from the writers that write in a more you know commonly referred to as like science fiction or something like that so i think this is all super interesting like i can talk about i could keep talking about this for probably like two more hours <laughs> <laughs> i'm wondering what is the importance of studying the atomic bomb and the counterculture movement like why is it something that should be studied and what can studying the past help us to learn or teach us well i, I do think there's value in studying and learning things just to study and learn them because i i you know um 
I think we should embrace curiosity. But uh, I know as scholars, we always need to justify what we do, right? Especially in the humanities. Um, as I said before, I think one of the biggest things is that it represents such a terrifying conundrum and it represents so much is, is, is balled up in it um, in terms of environment and religion and science and, and race and all of these things are kind of tied up in this icon. Uh, and, and I think that in itself, the, the very richness of it remains, though increasingly more work is coming out about atomic culture. I think that there's a lot of work to be done about the, the nuances and complications of all of these things coming together in this singular um, event thing, icon, whatever. Um, for religious studies, I think that it rep represents, the, the atomic bomb re represents a, a dubious space uh, between human and divine. I, that's really interesting. It's, it's a, um, maybe an, an access point. Uh, but maybe more importantly, it inflects itself into the everyday life for post-war America. So if we are to sort of look at ideas of habitus and, and, and these kinds of ideas of everyday life, I don't think that we could ever really take the threat of atomic holocaust out of the picture it, it's always present right um i don't necessarily think only americans dealt with that anxiety of of the threat of atomic warfare you know again to the american examples um kind of the thrust of american examples i don't think that this is uniquely american per se that these anxieties are present but because of where the United States, where the United States is on the geopolitical stage as a nuclear power in the early Cold War period, where you know for a while we're the only one, and then there's only two, that it does make it a unique, it does make it somewhat different than you know people who might otherwise nations that might otherwise just be casualties, let's say. And then finally, one last sort of plug, and this might be the most important. I, I do think that as humanities scholars and scholars of religion and scholars of literature, I, I do think that sort of justification is important. I, I might make jokes about it. I do think that there's value in studying things for their own sake, but um, we're currently, again, on a precipice. In, I think it was in, two, it was in 2000 or 2001, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, which was established um, after the topic, dropping of the atomic bomb, people might be familiar with them because of the, the, the doomsday clock, right? And they moved the doomsday clock, the time of the doomsday clock, where, where midnight represents apocalypse, right? Um, midnight represents humanity ceases to exist. In 2000, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists moved the doomsday clock to 100 seconds to midnight, which is the closest it's ever been. Based on the last few years we've had, that feeling of anxiety, of existential despair, of like the world is going to end, y'all, mm -hmm. is not something that feels so distant, right? That's something that I think we, especially for younger people in our present, in the same way that the counterculture was, I mean, it's not like it was solely youth movements, but it was primarily... Um, anchored in these youth movements. I think 
youth today feels this sort of existential dread that is similar to it. And indeed, it's it's only uh, compounded. There are more nuclear weapons. The nuclear weapons we have now are more powerful. Um, we have missiles that are supersonic that so that they might, you know, possibly be able to resist what missile defense systems we have. Uh, more countries have atomic weapons than ever before, and more countries are getting atomic weapons than ever before. Um, in, in the 90s, there, we did see um, some disarmament, but starting in the 2010s, it's growing again. Couple that with the pandemic, couple that with climate change, trying to understand how we make sense, both in terms of, of, of you know, religion and of science and of sort of, of, of humanities is of paramount importance in our contemporary moment. And I think that in, in studying the early Cold War period, not that we should necessarily look to these people for answers. I mean, again, I mean, it's, it's fraught. It, it, yes, we have stuff like Ram Dass, but we also have stuff like Charles Manson. So it's not like we can just look at the, these places like, oh, this is where our answers, but we can look to them and say, how has how did how did previous people sort of deal with this feeling right um and i think that there's something that could be very healing there i think that there's something to be very informative there um and i think that it is a a very kind of pressing humanitarian concern so not to get on like a giant pedestal and say everybody should start looking at the bomb the way i do um you know, but I do think that we're at a similar inflection point that 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 there's a lot of resonances of the anxieties of the period with our own, as well as you know the the sort of political division and everything that we saw in the 1960s and then that we obviously are experiencing today. So what a great note to end on. <laughs> <laughs> Existential dread. <laughs> Yay! It all comes it all comes back to it. But remember we must imagine Sisyphus happy if we are able to continue in this world. So I guess we can leave it at that. Um... Examples is an American Examples production in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Alabama, with funding from the Henry Luce Foundation. This episode was produced by Sierra Eichhorst. Special thanks to Dr. Eric Klein and Dr. Michael Altman. You can follow the Department of Religious Studies on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at Study Religion, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash R-E-L-U-A. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, or Apple Podcast, and give us a rating and review. You can read more about American examples at HTTPS. Oh, I'm not even supposed to speak this one. This is the written description. <laughs>